Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. But first things first, before we get into the, the chum of the evening. Wait, it's not chum that I'm looking for. Is that, is that quite the word, actually? No. Mm, it is actually really. far from what I was <laughs> intending. Uh, you need to know just how seriously we take this. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. In fact, this morning I listened to this uh, today's artist's discographical output yet again, a second time through. And by the way, we're not just covering albums. No, we do a, a deep dive analysis of EPs, singles, comp tracks. And then every release is rated one to five, an objectively accurate one to five, actually zero to five star ratings. There are There is an occasional zero. There is there. a delicious zero. <laughs> Uh, and that allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In today's episode of Discography, we'll be turning the spray cans on Betty Davis. Behind the scenes jazz fusion tastemaker turned now you see her, now you don't, hardcore funk dynamo. So this morning's guest is the author of the novel The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. The awesomeness of publishing a great book notwithstanding, we're going to leave it to her to explain why she's taken time away from her joyous post-Omicron Sunday afternoon to talk about the great, great, late Betty Davis. Lads and ladies of Discography City, please extend a warm yet completely silent welcome to Donnie Walton. Hi, so welcome great to, to be here. Thank welcome. you so much. And I hope this uh, conversation does not rate zero. <laughs> <laughs> Our guests are never rated. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> we had this episode planned for quite a while. Um, bef- you know, uh, months ago, really, we had uh, kind of chatted with you about doing this. And since then, of course, Betty has, uh, has passed um, just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I couldn't help but notice in the coverage of her passing and, you know, some of the obituary stuff that we had read. Um, you know, almost every time in the first sentence, it mentions that she's Miles, that she was Miles Davis's wife. Um, and which is kind of ironic because really it's, it's really should have been the other way around <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the influence <laughs> she had on him. Um, you know, some of his greatest music, um, his most significant music has her fingerprints directly on it. It wouldn't, wouldn't have happened without her um, being in his life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and one of the things that I think was so interesting about her story is sort of this, this thing about her that she was like a muse for him. Um, and that, but honestly, like she was so much more than that. First of all, she was an artist in her own right, but the way that she sort of influenced his whole style and sound and making it more electric and more with the times um, and more and they accessible only spent and more, more accessible. accessible. Yeah, totally. And they only were together, I think for a year. And mm-hmm. I think he said something like she was too wild for me, which is quite a thing for somebody no like Miles Davis to have said. <laughs> yeah. um, so she's just a fascinating, a well, fascinating I mean, figure. Uh, also, you know, interestingly enough, she served as a muse to you as well. So in your, in your novel, yeah. Um, she, it was really an amalgam, right? It was, uh, it was Nona Hendricks, um, Betty Davis and, uh, Grace, Grace Jones. Jones. Grace Jones. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, you, do you want to tell us how, you know, what, what piece of, uh, of the character, uh, Betty Davis inhabits? Sure. And I have to confess that, you know, 
Betty Davis is an artist that I've only learned about in very recent years. And I had actually started writing this novel before she came into my consciousness. Um, so, you know, I grew up a, a young Black woman who was into rock and roll and really sort of hungry for um, images of people who look like me making this kind of music. And of course, coming up, we had living color and bad brains and all that, but mm -hmm. no, as far as I know, you know, no very prominent black woman that was very clearly kind of like labeled as a rock artist. And so, you know, looking back at the era of the late sixties and early seventies, I was interested in sort of like disrupting history a little bit by writing this fictional oral history and um, doing what I thought was kind of inserting a black woman into that history without fully knowing that women like this actually existed. Right. And so, you know, I always, when I was thinking about the character of Opal, I was thinking at first about images. So I was thinking about Grace Jones, like someone who was very bold and in your face. And as I started doing research, that's when Betty kind of popped up and her story popped up and the deeper I got learning about her and um, her life, her work, um, her boldness, her style, um, all of those things just really kind of influenced the character. And I think like just, you know, so much about her and, and her kind of struggles to make her own lane in the music industry, I think was something that was very appealing to me. And, and that was what, um, I was interested in and kind of also the fact that she was sort of unapologetically who she was mm -hmm. and no matter how it was taken, you know, um, that's what she was going to do. And one of my favorite songs of hers uh, is from her third album called Dedicated to the Press. And I just love this idea of an artist who was really head on taking on her critics in, in the music. Um, taking on everyone. I mean, taking just on like, everyone. She's like a like the the most supercharged performance dynamos. If you see any footage, even if you just look at any of her album covers, it's almost like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to tussle with this person. <laughs> oh my gosh! And she was just so fantastically strange. Like that cover of "They Say I'm Different." I mean, first of all, the title <laughs> "They Say right, I'm right. Different," you know, and then to see her in sort of this. Sage kind of leotard with like it's just insane and that was the kind of like weirdness that I was looking for there's this great quote uh, Carlos Santana said she was the first Madonna but Madonna is more like Marie Osmond compared to Betty Davis <laughs> Betty Betty was a real ferocious Black Panther woman you couldn't tame Betty Davis yeah yeah. That and just that, like it. you, like you said, that image that was sort of chameleon like from album to album, but still the song so supercharged, so sexual, you know, um, incredible. Yeah. The, the character of Opal Jewel in the novel sort of becomes a punk icon. That, that didn't really happen necessarily to Betty, but I see her kind of in that sort of with that same iconoclast kind of rebellious mode. She kind of reminds me a little bit of like Iggy Pop or somebody. But yeah. super, supercharged and sort of dangerous type of performance. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had trouble kind of figuring out what Opal would sound like. And I think Betty also helped me with that because her range 
you know, I mean, her going from a low growl to kind of like shrill yelps in a single song. Yeah, yeah. Um, the sort of way that she was willing to make her voice so gritty and ugly. And I think she herself didn't even call herself a singer. Like she said, she was more of a vocal, uh, like a vocalizer, I think she said. And I, I found that to be very interesting because the thing that I wanted for Opal is that it wasn't that she was a great singer. The character, her sister is a better singer than she is. Mm-hmm. But it's about having that X factor. Right. You know, we like to do this thing on, on this guy graffiti where we try to communicate at the top of the show, however poorly what tonight's artist means to us. Um, you kind of touched on that in that you didn't really know about her. And it, for me too, I mean, I was uh, very musically hungry as a kid, always devouring books. There were no, there was no internet at that time. In fact, we only had horse and buggy to get around. <laughs> but, um, you know, I did buy Bitches Brew just based on the cover. And I remember how it entranced me as a kid. And then later learning that she clearly was the template for what I was hearing, what I was seeing, all that stuff that not to take away from Miles, because obviously, you know, he's he's no uh, podunk in the genius department. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's and then even now. Uh, you know, she's kind of the Lenny Bruce of black female performers. Uh, I would say if you had to assign that to somebody uh, and you look at Megan the Stallion, uh, you know, the most one of the most popular performers in the world. And still Betty dies and uh, continues to languish in obscurity, you know, with just a few mentions. It, you know, she'd be such a huge star today. I mean, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And but it's 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 so wild that once I did start digging in, like there was sort of a cache of things for me to to read and, and to, to watch. I think that documentary, They Say I'm Different, um, was out and I went back and saw some of the talkbacks with the director and there was Erica Badu and there was the singer Joy talking about how much she influenced them. And it was like, wow, how have I never heard of this? You know, how how is it that I'm 40 years old and I'm just learning about this woman? And it just really speaks to kind of the hidden figures of Black women um, in rock and roll. You know, most of them got their start singing background, but here was a woman who had her own band, was her own sort of leader, you know, and still I had never heard of her. And I'm still, I feel like, you know, the novel's been out almost a year and people are still kind of sending me little notes. Hey, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of that person? And it's all still education to me. Mm-hmm. The first I became aware of her, you know, the, that was from Miles's autobiography in which she kind of throws her under the bus. Um, but then, you know, years, I hadn't heard her music until I, this is probably in the early 2000s, I was playing with Macy Gray. And she oh. was a huge influence on Macy yeah. Gray, especially at that yeah. time. And, um, you know, those records, uh, this is, you know, going back to almost 20 years, they weren't really very well known then, but um, got turned on to those records in, in that period. I had read about her before, but then actually hearing the records, they, they far exceeded my imagination of what she actually sounded like and what those records sounded like. They're way more wild and like feral and primal than I had really yeah. envisioned. And I, yeah. I, yeah, Donnie, I'm curious, you know, uh, it's, I think it's easy to be fooled by that you know, public bravado that she had, because I, you know, I read this Mojo article that wasn't that long ago. uh, And those kind of antics seemed to hide a really private persona that was marked by a lot of pain and trauma, maybe as a result of being held up as an object of fascination or amuse. I don't even know. But do you think that 
uh, that side of her is greatly overlooked or that's a, you know, a, sort of uh, the main thrust of who she is? Well, you know, I think I think one of the other things that strikes me about Betty Davis is that she was a woman of conviction, I think. And I think, you know, again, I'm still learning so much about her. But from what I understand, like she was very much wanting to have control of her own music and her own image and her own sound. And when that wasn't happening, like it was kind of a wrap for her for a long time. You know what I mean? And it doesn't mean, however, that like her passion for the music went anywhere, you know, um, in the obituaries for her death, you know, I, I stumbled across someone had posted something recent that, that she'd written for another artist. You know, she was always still writing. Yeah. 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 So it's just sort of um, heartbreaking that, publicly she she did have this you know if you ever see very rare concert footage of her um there was some going around after her death Mm -hmm. you see someone who is so fierce and so just like you know you look at her and think like she she could do anything but to know that she did have those hurts and those vulnerabilities um and she did leave the business i think partly because she had some family issues i think her father's death greatly affected her um but to know you know that underneath all that bravado there was something very tender and i think that's another way that she influenced my character opal um that was another thing that i wanted to express you know the different between an image and and reality yeah she was sort of an enigmatic personality really she's sort of uh even people who knew her well I, I just from reading some interviews and watching did you see did you happen to see the uh, tales from the tour bus episode i have seen yeah, that a while that, ago yeah that's really great <laughs> Best love. yeah so yeah. you know the, the guys just the guys in her band talking she was she was definitely a uh a, a, she had some, some definite idiosyncrasies as a person it was, it was a very unique kind of person and, and seemingly very different from her uh from the stage persona which makes the yeah. stage persona that much more brilliant it's really that's like it's, yeah. there was nothing really like it at all at the time i mean there was other right. funk music but something with that kind of persona in front of it it was really shocking to people i think in a way that people don't fully understand yeah here was a woman who was you know kind of always ahead of her time i think and so the moment never quite met her and i think that's part of the fascination that we have with her and um there's a nonfiction book that i talk about a lot because it was hugely like inspirational it came out like when i was finishing edits on my book but i read it and i was like this is the book that i've been looking for and it's called (laughs) black diamond queens by maureen mann And there's a whole chapter in it dedicated to Betty Davis. Um, The book is about the contributions of African-American women to rock and roll. And, you know, I think we have this idea of Betty Davis being kind of a recluse, but that's not really the case. Like she would grant you an interview, but she wouldn't really say much. And so, you know, in the book, Maureen is sort of talking about like preparing for this interview and all these questions that she has and getting sort of one word responses. (laughs) She kind of lays it all out in the music. It's she's not really holding them back in in there. I'm a complete nerd. 
Joe is a complete nerd. I've, we've never spoken with you before, but the fact that you're combining musical personas in your characters and creating an Altamont type event uh, <laughs> in your book means you are a nerd and I don't need to ask you. So was this book your way of getting that all out or is this just part one of a never ending series of nerdy music books? Oh my gosh. Well, I think this, I think I put it all out in this okay, book. This okay. book combines many of my obsessions, music of the early 1970s and, you know, the trajectories of Black women in the industry and my sort of takes on media and culture. And it's, yeah, it's all those things that I was obsessed with at the time. And I'm going to, I'm just going to read this because uh, this way you don't have to, and you can remain humble. Uh, Alexandra Jacobs, New York Times review kicks off with this novel is so good. I want to rent a velvet swagged amphitheater and gather a large audience to blare through a microphone, just how much I like it. You must have been thrilled when you read that. Oh, gosh. What did that feel like? Yeah. Well, you know, that came out on my publication day and I keep my phone by my bed, which is probably a mistake. Um, But I knew that they they had been planning. Yeah, they had been planning to do a review, but you never know how these things are going to go. And so, you know, I woke up and I grabbed from my phone and I screamed and my husband woke up and said, what's wrong? What's wrong? (laughs) It's good. It's good. The review is good. Have you ever even gotten past that sentence? That's just an all-timer. It really is. It it was really amazing. I was very honored. So so before we actually, uh, before Joe and I actually launch into the discography of this uh, legacy artist, is there a particular Betty Davis LP that particularly touched or inspired you to put pen to paper? Oh, gosh. Well, I think they say I'm different. Probably just because it was the first one that I listened to. And mm-hmm. I think I listened to that one several times before I dipped back into the self-titled debut and into Nasty Girl. Um, but, it, you know, that song, He Was a Big Freak, is mm-hmm. so startling. <laughs> so, yes. like, wait, what did she say? <laughs> she used to be with a turquoise chain. Did she say that, really? <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> um, and it was like a process of, like, rewinding, like, you know, running it back and letting it play through. And then, wait, wait, <laughs> running it back. <laughs> and just the whole idea of, you know, a Black woman in that time feeling like, I'm a different kind of person and I'm proud of that. And, and here's like, here's sort of my swagger. Here's what I do. Um, plus, she, so I plus she produced have, it. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a really special uh, place in my heart for that, uh, for that record, but there's, you know, probably my favorite songs are on the first one. Um, Stepping in her eye Miller shoes is a great mm-hmm. song. Um, if I'm in luck, I might get picked up. Of course, is a great one. My my favorite all time song by her is the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I really yeah. like the vibe on that. Yeah, yeah, and it's so um, you know songs like anti love song when she gets a little quieter. You know, it, it kind of makes you perk up and listen because it's so rare. Yeah. You know, most of her songs are on 11. Yeah. yeah. And some of the lyrics are kind of, uh, when you dig into them, there's kind of a lot, like a lot of going on in the lyrics. Like that one, I have I have a quote from those lyrics, like, 
what anti-love song is really all about. Could I, because I know you would make me suffer. I know you could drive me mad when it got real. I know you'd disappear. That's why I ain't going to love you. Because I know you like to be in charge. Well, with me, you know you couldn't control me, don't you? There's a lot to dig into in a lot of these songs. It's the dynamics between her and the and who whoever the other person is that she's involved with in the song, which she's saying. There's, yeah, there's, and I think, you know, that kind of attitude, you know, it's influential not just for generations of, you know, like Black women coming after her, but also, you know, like punk and riot girl and kind of yeah. like very feminist kind mm-hmm. of music. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, this discography trawl is really... It really is mainly a corrective measure in the collective unconscious version of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that is, uh, you know, because simply, you know, Betty deserves a place in the Pantheon on a shelf no lower than Miles's. Agreed. Agreed. Dan, do you, do you hear the thud of that piece of concrete that I just threw on the ground? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to edit in a sound effect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, anybody listening, please pick up the book. Do yourself a favor. Yeah. To our listeners, you know, this book should really be right up your alley. It's, you know, it's a fictional oral history. It's set in a fascinating time and place. And it's really told through the medium of rock journalism. There's that aspect of the book as well. So our fans of the show, you know, you're going to get all the references and you're going to really enjoy the book. So go check it out. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on Discography. All righty. Right, thanks, Donnie. Bye-bye. One more quote from Miles Davis. If Betty were singing today, she would be something like Madonna, something like Prince, only as a woman. So let's, uh, let's uh, get up to the year 1964 as quickly as possible. So Betty was born in 1945, according to most people, although she claims 1944. Uh, she was born Betty Mabry in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, On her grandmother's farm in Reedsville, North Carolina, she listened to tons of blues musicians. At 16, she left uh, for the Fashion Institute of Technology, soaked up all kinds of Greenwich Village stuff, music, culture, the works, appeared as a model in 17 Ebony, Glamour, and other publications. And in her time in New York, met a whole bunch of musicians, including Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, which are seed planters, and we'll figure out why momentarily. So uh, just in general, a super groovy place to be. You know, Cafe Waz happening, all the folkies. You know, the Greenwich Village in the 60s is like, you know, it's sort of like the pinnacle of culture for all of time. Right. She's, <laughs> she's making her way. She's right she's in there. all kinds of yeah. stuff. Visual, uh, you know, meeting up with uh, musicians. And her music career was actually um, started uh, through her friendship with a soul singer named Lou Courtney, who produced her first single, The Cellar. Uh, I wasn't able to find her debut single. It was from 63. I'm sure it's amazing. Uh, it was a local jam for the seller. Um, but if anybody's got a link to it um, or something, send it to us. Please write in uh, either at the Facebook discussion group or you can send it through Spotify. Um, so her first professional gig wasn't until she wrote Uptown to Harlem for the Chambers Brothers. But her first single that I heard is 1964's Get Ready for Betty, Backed with, I'm going to get my baby back. 
sassy single right off the totally, bat. Totally, totally. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a mission statement for Christ's sake. It, it's pretty much straight up R&B, but it's got some, uh, it's got some grit to it in the track and it's a catchy song and um, it's got, it's got the attitude, right? Right. right it's, it's kind of a girl group thing actually, but, uh, but with more grit and gut bucket soul coursing through it than you'd find in something like that. Um, of course, released uh, as Betty Mabry, who she was at the time. This is a great single. This will be on the playlist for sure. Yeah, five stars for me on this single. Four and a half for me because we got to go from somewhere to somewhere. That's the now you're only doing my thing. I'm doing your thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but get symbiotic with you, man. All right, so in 1968, we just fast forward a few years. <clears throat> she's still involved with Hugh Masekela, and she records several songs for Columbia Records with Masekela doing arrangements. And a couple of those were released as a single in 68. On the A side, you have Live, Love, Learn, backed with It's My Life. And I mean, these are awesome. So Live, Love, Learn is string-enhanced soul, uh, very easily digestible. Not like her later stuff. It's My Life is um, very slick and horn emblazoned, but really, really good. A a path not taken for her. Yeah, I love the A-side. It's one of my most favorite things she did. And um, yeah, uh, you're exactly right. A path not taken. More kind of conventional R&B, but really nice song. She does it so well. She sings in kind of a more conventional style on these recordings. I mean, she didn't really find her signature style until kind of later in the 70s. But um, she's still terrific. She's you know, she's a really charismatic singer. But like you look at Aretha Franklin or Marvin Gaye or these other singers that had been for years uh, doing a different type of music than what they were best at. Um, and those records are kind of flat now. Right. These stand up. She still would have been great as this kind of singer, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, uh, the the B side, I didn't dig quite as much. Um, the A side is really like, uh, Live, Love, Learn is really a special kind of gem. Yeah. Um, I gave the over, the single overall four stars. Um, <clears throat> I'll give it four and a half. Um, but yeah, definitely worth checking out. Um, as so in 66, as Betty was, was modeling, she first met Miles Davis, who was 19 years older than her. Um, at the time, he was separated, and Betty began dating him in early 68. They were married in September 68. Uh, they were married for a year. In that time, she really, really changed his sartorial and musical outlook, wouldn't you say, Joe? Yeah, so if you're a Miles Davis fan, you know, 1968's a pivotal year when everything really kind of changes for him. He sort of develops, he's just kind of right in the middle of when he's got the electric quintet, and he kind of goes electric, um, and not only... But before he did, he released Feed to Kilimanjaro, which has Mademoiselle Mabry, one of his best songs. And she's on the cover. She's on the cover. I mean, she's obviously, you know... Rule in the roost, sort of. Yeah, I kind of alluded to in the uh, in the interview with Donnie that um, you know the first time I'd kind of even heard of her was in Miles's book. In in his book, he kind of throws her under the bus by saying, "What do you that, mean by that?" Well, he's saying he said the marriage broke up because she had an affair with Jimi Hendrix, right? Which right, he says right. is is bullshit, and mm-hmm. that the marriage ended because he was physically abusive, right? Kind of not really cool to make that um, accusation of her, which appears to be not true. She but, vehe- but she vehemently denies it. To so. be fair, he does actually credit her with introducing him to all these, you know, to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, Stone, she still comes off pretty the, pretty cool in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he may have thrown her under the bus for the marriage, but as far as, right. you know, giving yeah, he gives, he does give her due, proper yeah. credit for all the things that she turned him on to, for sure. Yes. So then in the spring of 69, Betty records a bunch of demo tracks uh, with Miles and uh, Tia Macero producing. Um, 
So at least five songs were taped uh, during those sessions. Three were uh, Betty Mabry originals. Two were covers of Cream and Credence. And Miles tried to use the songs to get a, a deal for Betty, but Columbia and Atlantic were not interested, and they were archived. Released in 2016 on the Columbia years, 68 to 69, by Light in the Attic Records. Um, Joe, what do you think about this record? Well, it's super fascinating, if nothing else, for the mashup of musicians, because it's sort of a mashup of Miles' band, so... You know, there are like electric jazz. You got Herbie Hancock, John McLaughlin. Yeah, Larry Young on organ. Wayne Shorter. Um, so all the Miles Cats. And then the, the Jimi Hendrix rhythm section of the time with Mitch Mitchell and Billy Cox. Right. Um, so it's kind of those two things mashed up together. and Which is insane. Imagine that being, the, you know, the band for your demos. It is insane. And it sounds amazing. It does. Um, they, it does. Their playing is just totally incredible. Especially you can detect some... Um, some John McLaughlin riffing on there that is unreal. He's so It is good. unfairly hard to say his name. <laughs> it really it's unfair is. how good he is at the guitar. There's a lot of things that are unfair about that guy. He's really unreal. You can, I uh, always have a big smile on my face when I hear his little licks spiking through. They're always so tasty. I don't really get the inner mounting flame. I've tried, but I just I, it hasn't grabbed me yet. Well, my favorite McLaughlin stuff is the stuff with Miles. You know, it's yeah, amazing yeah. playing yeah. on Bitches Brew. In a Silent and, Way. In a Silent Way. That Jack, Jack Johnson. There's yep, un- unreal yep, guitar stuff. That's incredible. Um, so this album, if I can call it an album, because it does have a vibe that's cohesive throughout, it sounds like a funk party hangout session. It's got a great vibe to it. And great touch, Miles talking in between takes, because at the end of the song Politician, Miles recommends over the talkback that she overdub on top of her vocal, and she fucking snaps at him like the badass I like to imagine her to be. Um, like, overdub. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's so awesome. I mean, just that alone is worth the price of admission. Every single song on this is great. I give it four and a half stars. Yeah, I gave this a four. Um, her her vocals are a little bit subdued on it compared to what she would later do, but it, yes. it, it, but it's definitely a turn to the funk direction when, away from soul. Yes, what she had done up to this point was really soul, and this was really embracing funk like fully. So that growly vocal affectation that Donnie was imitating earlier, uh, that is not yet in place. She has not yet developed that style of singing. But keep in mind, this is four and five years before the first right. album. Now the thing that is in place is kind of her style as a writer, which is to kind of come up with a funk groove, you know, kind of to create a, a funk backdrop and then kind of interpolate a song over that. It's kind of in the style of what James Brown does. Right. He kind of makes that kind of groove, makes the, makes the you know, in, yeah, insane thing. Yeah, they're kind of not, like, they're, they're like borderline songs. They're more like vamps. Right. Uh, right? I mean, right. And not she kinda, just these, And this is the, a style that she kind of stuck with. She stuck through, with this. Through, yeah, making yeah. her records. She and, just um, changed the way she did, she did it, but otherwise the writing style was there. Yeah, if you've seen the Tales from the Tour Bus episode, there's, uh, you know, a scene where she's kind of like, she's kind of would sing the a little riff into a tape recorder and mm-hmm. that's how she would write and she would kind of show it to the musicians and they would kind of cop the riff and then that's kind of how these songs were born um but yeah some great gems on this one the the, the version of um politician man the cream song the cream version is kind of like kind of like slow and lumbering and um, this version slays it it's so yeah, much better yeah yeah um, well cream had maybe three good songs yeah, and you know, it's the the playing on this is so uh, it's 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 a much faster kind of rave up version, and it's like John McLaughlin's guitar. Why don't so you want to talk about how bad Cream is? <laughs> <laughs> you skipped right over that one. <laughs> 
So, so after all this stuff, unfortunately, she doesn't get a deal. But um, you know that ne- that next year, Bitches Brew comes out, and again, uh, you know she has a big influence. Miles was going to call it Witches Brew originally. Uh, Betty convinces him to call it Bitches Brew, which is odd because Joe isn't his favorite word, bitch. Yeah, that's yeah. He would say that all the time. I guess he'd call everybody bitch. Yet for this album, it was going to be witch for some reason. <laughs> She's like, "Be true to yourself. Call it bitches brew." Um, so uh, it would have still been pretty good if it was witches brew. But yeah, bitches brew yeah. really does just like a little cherry on the side. It is. It is, uh, and apocryphally about uh, you know a, a sort of nod to Betty and her girlfriends. Apparently, um, so after the end of her marriage with uh, with Miles Davis, Betty moved to London around seventy one. She was going to pursue a modeling career. So she was writing music while she was over there and, and uh, dated Eric Clapton, who I guess was, she was in the, he was in the middle of his uh, heroin thing, right? Yeah, he was, a lo- he was like a shut-in. He was practicing for COVID lockdown, but with heroin. He was um, always in the middle of something. No, this was like post-Derek Domino's pre-Rainbow Theater show. So he was like just doing heroin. I'm sorry, you're, you're boring me to death. I, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Eric my, Clapton is a fantastically boring human being. Here's why we, she deserves this episode, okay? <laughs> this is all you need to know to know how cool she is. Eric Clapton wanted to collaborate with her and she refused. Okay, how cool is that? Okay, anyway. She's like, I play with John McLaughlin. <laughs> right. You suck. <laughs> so after about a year, she comes back to the States to to um, intending to record with Santana, but instead she records her own songs with a whole bunch of awesome funk musicians on the West Coast. She writes and arranges all her songs. Joe, take it away, please. Yeah, this is so it's her debut album. She's got all the A list um, West Coast, you know, Bay Area funk guys: Gregorico, Larry Graham, the rhythm section of Sly and the Family Stone, um, Neil Sean on guitar, who was in Santana, um, Merle Pete Saunders, Sears, a lot of all amazing the players. Point, the Pointer Sisters uh, doing background vocals, and uh, Gregorico produced the record, and it has a really uh, of all her records, this one sonically is my favorite. It has yeah. a really, it has a really thick. It does like, like heavy stomping funk sound, and the the uh, the rhythm section, the Gregorico Larry Graham rhythm section. It's just magic. So, um, and she, but beyond the sound of it, she has by this point really uh, developed her style as a vocalist and a writer. And just as importantly, her persona. Right. So she it's didn't really all have kind a of persona before, but right. I think she took uh, the aspects of her personality that probably she found to be the most exciting. I'm guessing, and tussled them up and teased them out. Yeah, so it's released in 1973. So a lot of things kind of coming together at the same time. It's like Black Power and second wave feminism and the sexual revolution, and she really kind of embodies all of it. And um, it's, it, I guess, this is uh, technically her debut album. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, it was a minor hit. It wasn't. It wasn't totally obscure. It's number 54. Right, but an incredible mission statement because mm-hmm. she's just bursting out with all of it at the same time. This the crazy persona and the the, the you know her vocal style. We haven't really talked about it too much. But um, she's not really a con- very conventional singer. She's not really like, um, you know, she's not Aretha Franklin. She's, you know, she's not really that kind of like belted out, you know, like a diva singer. She's more of, of, a, of a vocal stylist. Mm-hmm. And it's more about her. Um, she she kind of relies heavily on um, sort of like the James Brown scream, but like turned into like a full instrument. <laughs> she takes the hi yeah. and, and makes that into like a whole style of 
of communication. She so. keeps it within the words. She doesn't go all, right. She doesn't go uh, galasalalio. Right. She she pronounces the words. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Kind of so. You know, I, with her discography, it, it can be a bit of a challenging listen because of that. It, it's not really super accessible music. It's very, it's, you know, it, but if all, you're a funk fan and you don't right. know about this, if you're this into is funk, treasure. though, this is like this is first rate. You know, um, top notch funk, um, like very greasy. You know, yeah. So I'd like to point booty, out booty shaking. I'd kind like of to point music. out I've never been in a juke joint. However, this is thick bass heavy grooves slathered with juke joint grease. Yeah, I mean vibe <laughs> to spare. Um, you know, um, everybody's playing amazing. It, th- th- these records are like, you know, le- very legit funk records just in their own right. Um, I mean, how do you even, you know, a few of the ones that um, um, that Donnie pointed out, if I'm in luck, I might get picked up. The first song, um, Anti-Love Song, Your Man, My Man, Stepping in Her Eye Miller Shoes. Well, if I'm in luck, I might get picked up. That's the first tune. And it, it, at, for its time, if you think about what the message of that song is, the message of that song is, yes, I'm going out and trying to get laid. That's pretty much what she's singing there. And that may not seem really that shocking now, but at the time, that was really quite a thing to say you know, for, for a woman to put on a record. Yeah. Um, and the the amount of like raw sexuality dripping off it makes it even that much more kind of, you know, really in your face. You know, and, and it's basically like, you know, hey, if you have a problem with it, um, please do go fuck off. You know, the funny care. thing is I can see how she might have thought this is going to be huge because you can't ignore this. But at the same time, you know, the, the right wing that eventually shut her down and made it impossible for her to move forward in her career, um, they had the target on her forehead from the second she appeared on stage, I think. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of it is because of the content of the music and how much it is because of the style. Because like, as I was saying before, none of these are really like super radio friendly, kind of like catchy songs there, you know. Yeah, but the thing is, her songs were, were not played on the radio because of pressure by from religious groups and the NAACP. Right, right, right. That's documented. So that's um, as un- uncompromising as they are. There were forces against her right. as well. She was running into a headwind also. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, unquestionably. Um, that one I give four and a half stars. It's you could easily argue five, but you know the trajectory of her discography is basically sort of the, in my mind, the perfection of a template. Right. Instead of a you know constantly changing sort of thing. So what do you give it, Joe? I would I would say exactly the same. I also gave it four and a half, but could easily be five. It's a classic debut. And as a, as a state as like a debut that announces a certain type of persona, it's it's, uh, it's really fully. She's really very fully formed. Her persona on this, she really carried this through the next few records. Um, the, the same kind of like uh, character. It's it's tweaks to the same kind of deal. So in the next year, 1974, they say I'm different, and this time out, Betty produced. And I mean, totally killed it. I totally fucking slayed it. Right. So completely different musicians for the most part on this one. The the star-studded uh, West Coast band is gone. Um, and this one is... So as a result, it's a little bit less polished, I would say. And it doesn't really... It's not really sonically quite at the same level as the last one. But this one is the one, is the sweet spot for me, where she's kind of got the lyrical concepts and the cool riffs and it's all kind of like clicking and really coming together. Uh, the, the vision really is, is most together on this one. There, it's like every single, I think every song on this is a classic. I mean, there's no, there's no song on this that's not great. 
Yeah. I mean, None. this it's the same theme of, you know, sexual desire, but really the real theme is really just about freedom. You know, it's really mm-hmm. just about being completely free. Um, and th- th- that's really the feeling I get when I, when I hear this, it's, it's, it's the sound of a person who's, who's, who's also fully, classic, fully free. All her covers are great. This is probably my favorite of her covers. It's sort of a twist on the parliament funkadelic space thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, a distaff version and she's, I mean, what, what a pose, what a picture. It's, it's a great cover. Yep. Yeah, I mean it's it's her. It, we should talk about a little bit about her look in general. We haven't really spoken about that in her her stage persona. You know, silver hot pants, you know, very skimpy outfits, big boots, giant afro. Um, her and she's not just standing there; she's kicking and like you yeah. Know, like so it's it's a it, thrashing it's a around, extremely sexually charged type of performance. You know. Um, using the microphone as a phallic symbol, you know, a lot, lot of that kind of stuff. Definitely meant to shock. And, um, you know, definitely had an impact on people. I think it was, you know, a lot of people saw I know, it I like, discovered my special purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, it, you could easily make the, uh, the argument that, um, that at this point she was kind of at her peak. I mean, it didn't get better than they say I'm different. Uh, you could just argue it, it uh, remained as good. Right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah, I think she maybe branched out a little bit and very little bit on the next record. But this one to me was this this one. I'm, I mean, spoiler alert, this one's my overall favorite. Yeah. Um, you know, some. some it takes the, a really genius artist to only make three records because <laughs> right, <laughs> they're all right. going to be in our top three. It confounds our whole uh, system. <laughs> but some of the individual songs, he was a big freak. We talked about that with Donnie. I mean, like mm-hmm. the really eye popping, you know, um, you know, I used to beat him with a turquoise chain. <laughs> yeah. A great, I, like, great lyric. I love 70s blues. In my notes here, it says it sounds like an alligator crawling through a subway tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't call it a tramp. Yeah, that, that's you know, a great um, tune. Another very direct lyrical concept. You know, it's like, hey, I'm just living my life. You know, don't, you don't, don't call me no tramp. You know, and then and then at the end of the record, she kind of begins this template, which I really love. Um, that the closer song for her for her albums. Uh, downshift into a more mellow mellow groove. Not uh, not a ballad but more of a reflective moment toward the end of the record. Yeah, she kind of does that on all the records. So even the first one has In the Meantime is the closest thing right, to kind right. of like a mainstream kind of song. Um, but yeah, she kind of always does end the record with kind of a vibey, sort of more like meditative kind of thing. Um, yeah, Special People, it's kind of like a, like a, like a, like a really like a mood piece. It is. Um, and again, another interesting lyric, you know, it's about being in love with someone who's troubled and tortured. Um, you know, a lot of me- meaning behind the lyrics in, in these, if you really dig into them, um, but you know, it's it's you, you might be tempted to overlook the lyrics because of her performance. But the songs all really do have kind of like subtle meaning. I really do focus on the performance because it's so ear popping. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. I know. You know. I'm sort of avoiding checking out the lyrics, but I'm getting the obviously the gist. There are these elements of like feminism and you know, um, yeah, yeah. And, and freedom and you know. And and not not being under anybody's control, you know. There's there's a lot of that in the lyrics. Um, there is, it's there if you want if you if you dig into them for sure. They're seeping into me subconsciously because I'm vibing to the groove. I think it so does heavily. that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, it goes hand in glove with the with the music. So this is a hard five for me. Yeah, I gave this record a five as well. It's a funk classic. Um, there's Truly. really nothing really exactly like it. I can't really. Uh, some, but that kind of pers- that her, her persona on it is so wild. And it's got such focus, and um, you know, it's it's. She did all of it. She wrote everything, produced. Yeah, you know, if you hate it, it's her fault. If you love it, it's her <laughs> fault. So the next, so the, she's in control. Let's put yeah, let's put yeah, it that way. yeah. 
So the next year brings 1975's Nasty Gal, which for all intents and purposes uh, is her final album, even though she records a couple others. Uh, Nasty Gal failed commercially uh, when it was released. And uh, after it it tanked, Island uh, put her follow-up album, Is It Love or Desire, on the shelf. And uh, that was when she kind of dissolved everything. But Nasty Gal remains as a testament. Uh, I think it's equally as good as the previous album. Yep, it's very good. Um, I'd say the sound is maybe a little bit more refined. Um, This time she has her touring band, Funk House, is the backing band. And they would basically do all the remainder of her recordings. They're kind of the house band on everything. Um, it kind of this one kind of combines the strengths of the first two records a little bit. It sounds a little yeah. bit better sonically. It's a little bit more tight and polished. Um, productions maybe a little bit better than this than than they say I'm different. Um, but this it mixes up the moods a little bit more. Branches out into some kind of new feels. There's a little bit more kind of slow burn stuff on this record. So it does feel like a little bit of a branching out from um, they say I'm different. Yeah, when it slows down, it it really works. But then the stuff that is not slowed down is um, grimier than ever. I mean, Nasty Gal, um, Getting Kicked Off, Having Fun, which (laughs) that fucking song title is so good. Um, But the slow burn stuff, let's talk about that. So You and I is a co-write with Miles Davis. Yeah, so that's a pillowy, soft little ballad. Um, That one's a real break from character. Um, shows off a completely different side of her uh, singing voice. Um, that one's a real gem. That one was one of my favorites. How about this perfect lyric? I'm just a child trying to be a woman, and you, uh, you're a strange one trying to be my man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great song. I love that. Yeah. Um, Shut Off the Light is a great one. Uh, man, that is such a good song. Well, that's the other uh, extreme of her performance because her her vocal is really unhinged in that one. That's, right. that's, she's kind of at her most guttural and, and like feral in that song. Yeah. So she's you know, showing a really wide range of, of persona just in this in this record. Um, what else is under? So the, yeah, the Talking lo- Trash has that great like 6-8 kind of bounce to it. Um, and that electric guitar in the chorus is so searing and furious. Yeah, and it's, it's, so and it's, a, it's you know written in that style where it's not really a song that's written per se. It's kind of a concept laid on top of a great funk vamp. You know, and you know the concept is basically, you know, I can hang with you. You want to talk trash? I'll, I'm right there with you. Well, that was her deal, head. right? That, that, that's how she wrote songs, right? Yeah, yeah. So this one's very much in that style. Um, so my favorite slow burn thing she's ever done is the last song on her uh, on this record the Lone Ranger which is almost ambient funk uh, and it's it's almost like she disappeared in a plume of smoke created by this song that's what it feels like is after this she's gone yeah this and is like the vibiest track of probably her whole career it's all like you know long kinda, too. phasey guitar vibes and she's kind of very like a, it's, it's a very kind of sultry kind of slow jam sort of thing almost like a better um, love to love you baby Right. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's an amazing song. Um, you know, I, th- I think you're right. The, the kind of low key stuff on this album really, really works really it well. It pops. Yeah. And it also makes the guttural stuff even that much more uh, unhinged. Yeah. This is a strong album. It this is. is. This, this one, one I, give a, I give a hard five yeah, to. Yeah. I give a five to this one as well. Um, so, you know, none of these records were commercial, uh, commercial success or a hit, uh, but she did have two hits um, on the Billboard R&B chart. So if I'm, if I'm in luck, I might get picked up, uh, hit number 66 in 1973, and then Shut Off the Light, 
reached number 97 in 1975. I don't know if you know that, Joe. I did not know that. Isn't that weird? That was a top 100 hit. You know, so here's here's the deal with with Betty. Here's here's the problem. So she was following her muse, uh, you know, without questioning it whatsoever down whatever alleys it took her. <clears throat> and uh, in addition to that, all the stuff externally, she was barred from performing on television. Okay, so uh, some of her shows were boycotted. And then the radio band, because of religious groups and the NAACP, uh, she was kind of effed. Uh, after uh, Nasty Gal, uh, she, in 1976, she recorded Is It Love or Desire, which remained unreleased until 2009. Right. And so this one's pretty interesting. It seems a little bit, I, I mean, I, I'm not really, could, I was not quite clear from doing research on this, whether it was actually fully finished or whether it was abandoned, whether it was like near completed. I'm with, I'm with you as far as guesswork goes. It does feel like uh, it's not quite done, but yeah, it feels some of like them, the pieces are in place. Yeah, some of them sound a little bit like rough mixes. Um, so I'm not really sure what the status of it went. But, but, they, but they had gotten into, you know, they'd obviously made, at, le- at the very least, they made almost a full record. Um, you know, were, in- interestingly, this record, even though it's, you know, it's admittedly not as good as the three, you know, major records, uh, her writing has actually gotten better on a lot of the uh, tracks. Yeah, and again, and again, it seems like they're kind of trying to push the envelope of what they can do in funk. They're kind of branching out, I think, even more on this one. I wouldn't say they kind of have 100% successful... You know, I don't think they stick the landing quite as much as they did on the previous ones. Um, but again, you know, it's not clear that they were actually fully finished making the record. She did this again with Funk House, her touring band, and um, they did it at this crazy studio in Bogalusa, Louisiana, which was like the, it's, it's like a studio in the country. Yeah, it's like a swamp town. You know, um, you know, some of the guys would say they'd see like alligators out in the streets. <laughs> so. Um, Kind of a crazy atmosphere to work in. It's it's definitely really interesting. I think her um her the 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 feral persona, the kind of like the unhinged, squealing, shrieking Betty is kind of more in the background a little bit. Well, I uh, think I think she's tasted failure at this point, and I think she's not just looking her wounds, but sort of seeing the writing on the wall. I mean, a song like "Stars Starve," you know. Right. I mean, that's the trials and tribulations. This is a very uh, emotionally raw song. This is not yeah. like, you know, come come have sex with me. This is, um, I've reached the end of my tether. Right. Basically. Yeah, it's more of a, it feels more like a band kind of effort. There's more group vocals. There are some other vocalists who appear on it. Hoary um, Angel has right. uh, some dude screaming out with her. <laughs> right. uh, but there's some great tunes. Is it Love or Desire uh, is great and just as good as anything else in her catalog, I think. Uh, it's so good. Yeah, it's so um, good has a real kind of like interesting take on funk. Um, very forward looking for when it was done. Um, when romance says goodbye, that one's kind of that's almost great. Like, almost like minimalist kind of funk. Um, uh, Bottom of the barrel and for my man. I want to mention those two, but I also want to mention the first two songs that I would call just mediocre. Uh, I'm only pointing this out because. How many times can you say someone's great? I mean, everything she's done up to <laughs> right. this point is great. So let's get personal and bar hopping on side two uh, are pretty uh, mediocre. And uh, without talking about the actual songs, what this imparts to me is that 
she's some of the wind has gone out of her sails you can feel it on the album as it starts to drain away then the next one that comes out you can really feel it and then it's over yeah so you know she's probably aware at this point of all the all the hurdles that are in her way to being successful great songwriting slight concessions in genre restriction that feel less revolutionary than what came before i give it three and a half stars yeah, I gave it the same, three and a half. And um, I should also mention um, the song Bottom of the Barrel, which is a direct, explicit attack on disco. Um, it's basically a disco sucks kind of song. <laughs> and it kind of makes the argument that funk is superior just by merely being a great funk song. <laughs> it makes that argument. Which makes the next record a little bit sadder because uh, not that it's a bad record, but three years later, she records Crashin' from Passion, which remains unreleased, but I just found out, uh, I was today years old uh, when I found out that this is coming out through, what, Light in the Attic? Yes. Good. So uh, it's material from some 1979 recording sessions uh, that, were, uh, that was eventually used for two bootleg albums. One is Crashing from Passion in 95, the template of which we used for this review, and Hanging Out in Hollywood from the next year. There's only a small handful of good songs on this. Yeah, and there's a lot more kind of conventional R&B sort of stuff. There's, um, you know, a few years prior, she was kind of doing the anti-disco diss sort of song. There are some things in this that, that are pretty much straight up disco. Um, and totally uninspired, and you can hear her going through the paces and being disconnected about the whole thing, too. Yeah, so this one is kind of more of a uh, genre tourist kind of thing, where she's kind of trying on a bunch of different, uh, you know, uh, there's like a there's like kind of a reggae, like a bubbly re- reggae kind of thing on here. This one, to me, is concession time, because stars starve, you know? Right, right. So there's the songs that I like are Quintessence of Hip, the first one. Um, another one of her funk style roll calls, uh, this time just a little bit slicker. Tell me a few things is, is very good crashing from passion. And then most importantly, the closer, uh, which could very well stand as her farewell to the music industry and the world at large. You take me for granted. Yeah. So that one, you take me for granted kind of has like, almost kind of like a yacht rock kind of like, uh, like, I don't know. It's sort of like a soft R and B kind of, um, but it does have a uh, it has an oddball kind of charm to it, and the message I think is very sincere. If this is this very different from the stuff that she's known for. You would not even guess it was with the same artists. This seems to reflect the more of the you know the quiet Betty who uh, left the music industry and never really did anything again except for one song. Yeah, if you're looking for the kind of classic Betty stuff on here, it's the, you know the quintessence of hip is kind of in that style. And so is um, the, the title track, Crashing from Passion. It's right. kind of more typical of her classic period. Um, yet, you know, Tell Me a Few Things, as, as I liked a lot. That was one of my favorites from the record. It's kind of like an odd, it's kind of sort of like jazzy sort of ballad. By the way, I want to note that, uh, you know, this is still loaded with good players. You got Herbie Hancock on keyboards. Uh, you got Chuck Rainey on bass. Martha Reeves and the Pointer Sisters on backing vocals. This is an unreleased album with some of the best musicians there ever were. Yeah, and I think if you pluck the best things, there's still you know there's still some good stuff going on here. And um, we have, and we, so right. you want to go on our playlist. These uh, might not all be playlistable f- because this is not officially released yet. So, um, well, we'll try. Yes, and if we can't do it, just find those four songs. That's all you need from this. Right. Um, so in '79, that was it. Betty, oh, we, we got to give. Uh, oh yeah, sorry, sorry. That was uh, three stars for me. 
Um, I gave this one the same three stars. I think we've rated everything identically. That's yeah, <laughs> weird. I think this is the first time. On That's that. very no, we didn't. I think the first one we uh, the first single and, and the, the Columbia, Columbia stars. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, the, the, these are not three stars. Is generous. Yeah, these aren't that hard to rate really because the the great ones are clear five stars. If you start here, you will not give it three stars. If you end here, you will. I think there's enough here um, to 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 fully rate it three stars because I you know it's it, half of it's quite good I think. But the stuff that's bad is really fucking bad. Right. Um, yeah. So Betty stopped making music, returned to Pittsburgh where she has lived quietly ever since. I did talk about that Mojo article that I read about her recently uh, within the last few years, which revealed quite the surprisingly shy, quiet, soft-spoken presence. A greatest hits album called Anti-Love, The Best of Betty Davis, was released in 2000. And then 19 years later, uh, just pre-pandemic, Betty released A Little Bit Hot Tonight, her first new song in over 40 years, which was performed by Danielle Maggio, an ethnomusicologist who was a friend and and associate producer on Betty, They Say I'm Different. It really does sound like she could have whipped this one right out at the yeah. tail end of the Nasty Gal sessions. You can hear her songwriting voice in there. Um, you know, you could, you could, it, ha- it's, it sounds like a Betty Davis it's song. It's crazy because yeah. it's decades later. I, I give this one four stars, it, and not just out of generosity. It's a great song. I give it three and a half. You asshole. A different rating. <laughs> you did that on purpose. Uh, all right, so February 9th, 2022, she passed away. I'd like to say that... Um, in August through September of 2021, I was voraciously listening to her music, compiling tons of notes for this episode, and uh, we were just finally able to get it together uh, right after her passing. Um, but uh, and she'll definitely be missed. I, I hope that this that this episode attempts to um, and does something in the way of a course correction for her. Uh, as far as the, the arc of her career, there's no shape. She was great, and then she kept on being great right until she stopped. Right, and it's all kind of one continuous sort of uh, flurry of activity, um, you know, that basically encompasses the, the 1970s, you know, plus the couple extra things from the 60s. But yeah, I mean, um, the all the records from the, the three records that were released, uh, you know, during her prime, you know, you really can't go wrong with any of those. Those are really, uh, really all kind of essential. What's your, what's your top three? Um, number three. I have uh, Betty Davis, the eponymous debut. At number two, I have Nasty Gal. At number one, They Say I'm Different. For worst album, I have Crashing from Passion. But if you don't consider that a real album, by default... She doesn't have, have a bad album. Have, <laughs> I guess you'd rank as... Is, is it Love or Desire would be the worst album? But there's no, not Col- really... Columbia Years. Yeah, even that. I mean, there's nothing that really would... It, it, there's just, it's just there's no worst a, album. a less good album. A less good album. A less amazing album. So my top three is only very slightly different. Number three is Betty Davis, the eponymous one. Number two is They Say I'm Different. Number one, Nasty Gal. But you could certainly make the argument to flip one and two. Uh, worst album is easily Crashing from Passion. Um, and, you know, for her... Uh, you definitely want to, uh, you're going to want to go to the link in, to the playlist uh, in the show notes and also on our website, discograffiti.com. Check out the playlist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great material on this. Don't forget to visit the link in our playlist. Uh, it's in the show notes. And also on our website, discograffiti.com, you will find a, a Betty Davis playlist that is loaded to the gills with gold. 
Yeah, and you can also on the uh, in the link in the show notes, you can send us a voice memo if you have, if you want to like weigh in with your opinion. We'd love to know what your favorite album is by her, or but, if you disagree with us, we'd love to know. And you can also um, do the same on our Facebook discussion group, which we are we'd love to hear from you on there as well. We will be interacting with you personally. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Discograffiti or on Instagram at Discograffiti Pod. Definitely follow us on Facebook. Uh, you got to hit that that follow button, that subscribe button, please, and rate our podcast five star ratings only. Uh, uh, other ones are not allowed, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, yeah, so I think that's about it, and that covers it. Yeah. Join us uh, next time on Discography. Lots of exciting episodes coming up. Lots more additional content. We are working away very busily on these for you. We are both uh, having nervous breakdowns, trying to uh, juggle family life, work life, and uh, most importantly, show life. <laughs> and uh, so we'll see you next time on Discography. Discography.